0: Who you are defines how you build. This is Thought Leaders Revisited, a special summer 2020 edition of our Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series. During this summer of uncertainty, we're inviting some of the most influential past ETL speakers to join us for a series of new conversations about innovation, leadership, and especially finding opportunities in the midst of a crisis. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Chris Redlitz, Beverly Parenti, and Ray Hartz back to ETL. Beverly and Chris are the co-founders of The Last Mile, an organization that aims to break the cycle of incarceration by providing education and career training opportunities in prisons. Founded 10 years ago, 2010, at San Quentin State Prison, The Last Mile has become one of the most requested prison education programs in the United States. And Ray Hartz was a participant in the Last Mile program at San Quentin, where he crafted a plan for Healthy Hearts Institute, and he launched and leads this venture. Chris, Beverly, Ray, welcome to ETL. Uh, Really delighted to talk to you since your last visit seven years ago in 2013.
1: Thanks for having us. Great to be here.
0: Really a pleasure. So we're going to talk about what's going on now, but we're going to also play some short clips from your last visit to help tee up the conversation. Now, I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of The Last Mile. In fact, I've got my Last Mile uh, sweatshirt on right now. Uh, The talk you gave seven years ago stimulated me to start volunteering in the program. And from my vantage point, it has been incredibly remarkable to see the program grow and expand. So I want to start with a short clip with uh, Beverly talking about what motivated the launch of this program. So let's start with a clip about, um, you know,
1: what, what inspired this at the very beginning. My first reaction was, why would I want to spend my free time? Because I have so little of it anyway. Why would I want to spend my free time working with prisoners? But he had that passion, and he actually asked me not to make any judgments about something I knew very little about. So reluctantly, I committed to do research about incarceration and also to go and visit the men to experience firsthand what he was so passionate about. So first was my research. Well, I wanted to find out about more, more about the issues facing the prison system in California today. And what I learned from my research made me realize that even a small scale effort could make a difference. So here's some of the learnings. In California, we spend more for prisons than higher education. The average cost per prisoner to taxpayers, $45,000. The rate of recidivism exceeds 60%. So by the time many men are released from San Quentin, as taxpayers, we've already invested nearly $1 million their incarceration. But without rehabilitation, many of them will return. That's a bad investment. If we could reduce recidivism by just five percent, billions of dollars could be saved in the next 10 years alone. Wow,
0: really, really impressive. And I, I think that you know this was such an enormous opportunity to do something. So what have you learned in over the last 10 years of running this program? Um,
2: We've learned a lot. Um, Certainly that was very early on the program. You know, uh, Ray was there and we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, but you know, I think a few things that we've learned about how to operate a, a program in prison because both Beverly and I have never had any experience in prison before just visiting prison, let alone running a program in prison. Um, and what we learned is uh, how to work with corrections. Um, You know, I come from the startup environment as a venture investor, and everything is very, very, you know, zero to 60 very quickly. You know, uh, corrections doesn't move that fast. So we realized that we had to do things very incrementally and building relationships top-down within corrections. So now we have, we're in, you know, six states today. We have great relationships with the Department of Corrections and with the governors of each state. And I think that's really important. The second thing we learned is how to deliver a program that can scale. Because San Quentin is very unusual because it's very close to San Francisco. And as you've done with your class, brought your students up to, to mentor in San Quentin, which is phenomenal. But most uh, locations are remote. So today, we, we uh, basically run all of our programs re- remotely. We have a studio in San Francisco where we broadcast live into the classrooms and they have a learning management system there that they can log into. So utilizing technology has really allowed us to scale the program.
0: So one of the things that I find very interesting is you started out teaching entrepreneurship, right? Of course, that's what you knew, you're you know, in the world of venture capital, and then you ended up pivoting to decide to teach coding. What, what
1: motivated that change? Uh, what really motiva- motivated the change was market demand And at the time, remember, this was, you know, almost a decade ago, we realized that there would be a shortage of 1 million software engineers by 2020. That's what was predicted by 2020, which is where we are today. So we decided to teach skills, marketable skills, because our mission is to provide marketable skills that result in gainful employment. Um, And it was all a test. Uh, It was just could we possibly teach software engineering without the internet? I mean, we created all these challenges. So software engineering, great jobs, high market demand, and great pay. And those were the things that really drove us to start a coding program as a test. Um, very, very interesting. Well, I, I want
0: to bring Ray into the conversation. And I know that, you know, one of the most important things you did was to give paint, help people paint a picture of a future that was different than their past. And I'd like to turn to Ray, who was a student in the program. Uh, you did a magnificent job during the last ETL session uh, sharing with us your one-minute pitch. Now, this was something that I know was a very important part of the entrepreneurship training, is not just coming up with the idea, but figure out how do you pitch it to people to get them really excited about what you're doing. So I want to play the pitch that you gave seven years ago and talk to you about how this venture has essentially evolved since then so let's play let's play your one minute pitch
3: by show of hands how many of you have witnessed either a parent a child a friend or maybe your spouse struggle with obesity you don't have to raise your hand for this one but think about it did you ever feel helpless in their struggle if you have you're not alone many people who have lived in a low-income community like i have where the obesity rate is above 50 percent have experienced the same feeling of helplessness. That's why today, I'm doing something about it. Good evening, my name is Horatio Hearts, and I'm the founder of Healthy Hearts Institute, the co-op that will bring health and fitness back into our neighborhoods. HHI will turn empty lots into gardens and transform neighborhood food deserts into green nutritional oases. We will turn abandoned buildings into lead certified fitness centers and provide our members safe places to exercise. Our goal is to get us back to the good old days when the community was ripe with nutritional foods, kids were outside running and playing, and the obesity rate was below 17%. So join the Healthy Hearts Institute and let us empower the beat of your heart. Thank you.
0: That was super great pitch and you had did it without any preparation, you just pulled it off. So, uh, how did, can we start out with just how did the program, the Last Mile program, influence you, Ray?
3: Oh, so first of all, thank you for for having me back, man. It's crazy to look back seven years ago and and see where I was at then and where I'm at now and how the program has evolved, so thank you for having me here. you know, if I think back about how Last Mile influenced me, uh, I think about my mindset at the time when I first encountered uh, TLM. And, you know, I had, uh, I was just a year to the house, I mean, and I only had a year left uh, before I'd be released. And I had spent the last seven years really focusing on uh, educating myself, preparing myself to uh, start my own business. So when I met uh, Chris and Beverly through the Last Mile, you know, it was pretty exciting. Um, just thinking about how I can leverage uh, what they're teaching um, and to create my own business. Uh, so Great. I was pretty smart.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing. So um, how is your venture doing? Because you got out and you actually decided to pursue this idea. It wasn't just an academic exercise. You're now running Healthy Hearts.
3: Yeah, uh, it's doing well. You know, over the last few years, we've grown. It took me a little while to get it started. But in 2017, I got my first grant um, and I turned that, uh into uh, uh, organization so we launched a community garden started with 10 beds we got 20 garden beds and uh about 2200 square foot of, of growing space um we're teaching mindfulness classes nutrition classes and cooking classes uh gardening classes and we're feeding about 170 uh families twice a month uh with the food we grow um and, and with our partnership with the uh with the, uh contra costa county uh food bank
0: Fabulous. I mean, really, really great. I I couldn't be more delighted. And it's interesting to think about, you know, teaching in prison has a lot of challenges. I know that I've done a lot of classes, a number of classes with the last mile, where I brought up Stanford students. We did actually one course which was taught jointly between Stanford and San Quentin. You know, no Internet access. You know, the power goes out. There's lots and lots of challenges. Um, And, in fact, right now there's a much bigger challenge with the COVID crisis that's happening at San Quentin. um, It's interesting to start thinking about given all the constraints, what are the metrics you use for success? And I want to go to a clip from Chris talking about the key performance indicators here. How are you going to measure whether this program is successful given all the constraints? So let's play this clip and then talk about how that's evolved over time.
2: So we started the program, but we have to have, as you, you know, learn and and talk about startups. What are our KPIs? How do we judge the success of this program? And first, the first thing that we had to understand and appreciate was, does it resonate with the men in prison? Is Is this something they want to learn? And can they really absorb the applications that we're presenting to them because they have no internet access. They have no access to technology. And will the correctional system adopt what we're trying to do and be open enough to understand what we're trying to accomplish.
0: So really good question. And uh, so I'm wondering how your KPIs have changed over the last 10 years, Chris?
2: Yeah, they really haven't changed that much. I mean, the, the three that I mentioned then were, you know, is it going to resonate inside? And that was the time when we were launching the entrepreneurship program. So the bigger question when we launched coding in 2014 was even a bigger question, is there going to be interest in that and can we actually do it? That was a big question. So those KPIs uh, certainly have, have, um, have remained the same. You know, As we expanded, you know, now we're in women's prisons and youth facilities and we, we are constantly conscious about our curriculum resonating properly within uh, the institution and making sure that what we're teaching is really employable, you know, remain be employable skills. The second part was, uh, will the community participate? You know, will people come in uh, and volunteer? Will they, you know, do things, um, whether or not they financially donate and support it that way? Um, And that, as you have said, because you have been a phenomenal um, volunteer, Stanford has been really engaged, so we've had uh, really i think the it's the number is almost a thousand volunteers we've had over time um so we checked that box for sure and then the third one was you know would companies hire? and um you know early on the question was are they going to pursue the ideas that they did in the entrepreneurship program as ray has done or as we expanded into coding would tech companies hire and that's absolutely the case today so you know, the KPIs remain the same, the goals are a bit different, but our KPIs definitely are the same.
0: Yeah, so Ray, did you were you aware of what the KPIs or the metrics or goals were and how did that resonate for you as someone who was in the program?
3: Yeah, I was aware of, I think Chris had mentioned them uh, early on in, in the classes and uh, he mentioned his uh, thoughts about what it resonated. You know, yeah, it, it definitely, I think that's the one that, that sticks with me the most. It definitely resonated. Um, To have someone uh, like Chris come in and then some of the distinguished guests that he brought into uh, the program was like super inspiring. Um, It it exposed me to a different uh, world, kind of like, uh, I think I'm reading this book, Ta-Nehisi Coast Between the World and Me, and it kind of creates that parallel, right? Uh, Where I come from and then where Chris comes from. So uh, this program kind of bridges that gap, right? so I think that uh, it definitely resonated with me and off to the races with it.
0: Great. So I want to encourage people who are watching, uh, the Stanford students, as well as uh, those people who are watching on YouTube, to ask questions. Uh, the Q&A app is open, and feel free to ask anything you'd like. Uh, we're really eager to, to respond to the things that are, you're curious about. Uh, one of the things that you brought up is getting support for the program and you know this is not inexpensive to run a program like this. I know you've had to get a lot of very um, extensive computer equipment and to build all sorts of internal tools and uh, lots of other resources that need to be available. I- I'm want to play a clip about how you thought about building alliances to support this program and then to talk about the other sources of of support that you've been able to get over time. So let's let's play our fourth clip uh, looking at, you know, how you start bringing alliances in early on.
2: So all of our funds and support will become privately. uh, You know, I think when we went to Sacramento the first time, we finished the meeting with Matt Cade, who was the secretary of prisons at the time. I think he was waiting for us to have our hand out. And my hand was this instead of this. And it made a big difference, right? So we can get a lot further by doing it outside of that. Um, and, we, and we really want to show that you can marry private and public effectively without taking public funds. So that's really been our strategy.
0: So I'm curious, Beverly, Chris, what have been the most interesting or most successful sources of support over the last 10 years?
2: Yeah, at the time when, uh, when we did that event, um, it was all privately funded. Um, there was a resistance early on from our perspective to engage public funding because we want to make sure that we established the program. We had success metrics that we could actually, um, you know, present. Uh, today, we have support from both public and private. And as I mentioned in that comment, it's really important that we have this public-private partnership in every state that we're in. Uh, because it's not only it's, it's great to get uh, public funding, but it's even more powerful to bring in private companies because not only do they bring their funding but they also bring their employee base uh, and they allow their employees to participate in this, which is really valuable today in today's market
0: I know you've had a lot of uh, really interesting innovative companies get involved you know come to visit and hire folks i mean one of the things i'm ex- most excited about is you know people could actually outsource their coding to the prison program, to the last mile. So in the the men who were there or the women in other prisons can actually be doing projects and have referenceable um, projects that they uh, could put on their resume when they get out. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Uh, sure, we can. And, and I just wanted to uh, mention just some of the, the funding groups also. I think it's really important to mention that. The you know Google.org is a big funder of ours. Um, Stand Together is a big funder of ours, uh, Chan Zuckerberg, um, Bank of America, and and it's really, as I said, important to, to engage the employee base as part of that um, proposition. So I, I just wanted to call out those. I don't know if there's anybody else you want well, to mention. Obviously, California Department of Corrections mm-hmm. and CalPIA, which is Prince Industries, are a major um, partner of ours as well. Well,
1: That's- actually, CalPIA is uh, part of the story of. development inside as well, but they are the ones that actually, it's Prison Industry Authority, they helped fund the original coding program at San Quentin, which is a CTE, or Career Technical Education. And not only do the students learn these amazing skills, but they also get milestone credits towards their sentence. So for every six months that a student inside San Quentin successfully completes a cohort of The Last Mile, they earn seven weeks off their sentence. Wow, that's so amazing. Year, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, so imagine, and I, I
0: understand imagine. that in the that you know a lot of the people work inside prison and they get paid a minimum amount, but the folks who are in the last mile actually get paid a significant wage for the work they're doing for companies. Is that that's true? right?
2: Yeah, that's true. You know, unfortunately, because of um, you know the pandemic, uh, that is. Closed down today, so TLM Works is what it's called, and it's it's on hiatus because of the pandemic, so we can't actually operate it. Um, but you know, the the hourly wage inside for our program is a little over twenty dollars an hour, which is one of the highest uh, wages paid in prison in the U.S. So it's something where the participants can save and have money when they get out, which is super important because today, um, you know, Ray can certainly attest to this that. When you get out of prison, the government gives you basically $200 and potentially a bus ticket and that's it. Where here, they actually have savings that'll help them reestablish, get an apartment potentially and get started.
1: Just to put the $20 in perspective, the average prison wage is 32 to 95 cents an hour. Amazing, really
0: remarkable. Um, So, Ray, I'm curious, you know, when you were in this program, what did other people think about this program who were in it and those who were not in it? Was this looked at as, you know, very elite opportunity? You know, how did you how did other people view this in within the system?
3: Um, So, you know, I was the second cohort to go through there. Um, And so, you know, it hadn't exploded yet. Uh, I think people were, you know, it was gaining traction at that time. Um, people starting to become more aware of it, um, but I, I can speak to the participants ourselves. Like we were super excited, like uh, to have this opportunity. And and then you know as as it progressed and we did our second demo day, I think people became more excited uh, about right. participating.
0: The demo days are incredible. I mean, you know, what an amazing amount of excitement to see these ideas come to life. Um, there's a question from uh, one of the students. Um, to Ray, and it says, you know, what were some of the barriers you faced when you started Healthy Hearts, I'm assuming outside of prison, and how did you overcome them?
3: Oh, man. Um, you know, some, some of the barriers I think was uh, just uh, getting myself out there, um, um, letting people know who I was and, and, and sharing my story and, and, and having access to capital, that's still a, a, a barrier. Um, um, being able to hire talent, that's, that's something that's super difficult um, just because where I'm at. Um, there, there are a number of things, but you know, the main thing is to, to live with purpose. Like I, I really feel like I live with purpose. Um, and when times seem hard, you know, I, I lean on that, you know, when I see other organizations, uh, you know, and I, I'll, I'll speak on this real briefly, uh, just because of the times that we're in, when I see other uh, organizations that are non-black and they, they receive like four times the amount of funding I receive in half the time, or they uh, they, they hire talent to build out the team, like highly skilled people come out and volunteer to, to, to build their team, or you see uh when I get a newsletter and it's, it's, it's well-written content, and they have videos to boot, like, you know, I wonder, like, why don't I have something like that? Like, why, where is, what's the barriers for me where I don't, I don't, I'm not able to create that type of uh, support so I can get this type of uh, – so my community can get the support that they need? So when I look at those type of barriers, uh, especially, you know, the highlight right now is just talking about all of Black Lives Matter and, and, and you see all these big brands speaking about it. But when I think about like what I've experienced personally, it makes me think about like, is this a part of structural racism, right? Um, that I, I'm not receiving that. Um, so those are some barriers and I'm just gonna speak my truth, right? Uh, I could sugarcoat in it and say like, Ray, you're not working hard enough. But, and, and then as an entrepreneur, You have to figure it out. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or whatever color you are. If you're an entrepreneur, you have to figure it out. You have to overcome these things, right? And you got to stay the course. And for me, I'll say to any entrepreneur, like if you're doing something purposeful, then lean on that. Like if you have purpose and you're, you're living through purpose, lean on that and you'll be able to overcome whatever obstacle it is, no matter what.
0: So I'm curious, have you been able to tap into the last mile network outside of prison? I know there've been a lot of people who have graduated from the program and are out, out in the world. Has that been a valuable network?
3: Yeah, definitely. There's folks that, um, that I reach out to all the time. Like a lot of, you know, to be completely honest, like a lot of the people that I know are, um, that are outside of my community, some way we're tied through, through the last mile. Um, if not directly, indirectly, right? Um, and so that's, in, in that sense, definitely, uh, that network has definitely helped me. Like, um, even on a personal note, uh, being able to go to uh, one of the, uh, Chris's friends' winery, uh, uh, Hourglass uh, uh, with Jeff Smith, just been able to go there for my 45th birthday and take my family to experience something that we never get access to, like, um, everybody in my family, this is a, a year and a half later, they still talk about this was a moment. So this type of, of, of place, uh, this type of network, like it exposes us to, to different things. So yeah, um, I, I definitely lean on, on my TLM network.
0: Wonderful. So we have another question from another student and I encourage others to chime in with other things you're curious about. Uh, Jessica asks, You know, she says government can infamously be be infamously challenging and slow to work with, uh, but they're necessary to have a legitimate impact. Um, Do you have any advice on working with bureaucracies to produce effective results? You know, what what has been most effective and what kind of clues can you give others?
2: Yeah, you know, I think really it's um, building an incremental relationship. What I mean by that is that You can't. If I went in to CDCR ten years ago and said I want to build a technology uh, center inside San Quentin to teach coding, they would have said, "There's the door." Right. So you have to start very early and develop relationships. And also, this is not just government, but it's anything when you're trying to develop a business is uh, find champions that believe in your cause. So we had Matt Cate, who I mentioned in, in my talk 10 years ago. He was the secretary of prisons at the time. He and I connected and he understood the cause. Chuck Patillo, who was the GM of CalPIA, understood the cause. And so we really built those relationships. And now, you know, we do have a tech center in, in San Quentin. As you've been in there, we have, we took the old print factory, gutted it. Um, we have five classrooms, soon to be eight classrooms. So it is uh, really a flagship um, facility that many states now come and visit and see what they can do. But I think really is starting those incremental relationships are really important.
1: One thing I would add to that is that there are all these processes and procedures that are in place today that have been in place for a long time. I would say doing your research and understanding what the proper protocols and procedures are within whatever the type of business or program you are trying to implement in that governmental agency and start working within the realm of what is available to you and then establish yourself. And then as you decide to change and add, you will have already situated yourself within the agency or with the relationship and I think one of the things that they said about us early on on, is that we learned how to fit in and make incremental change, but we didn't come in and try to change everything overnight. I think it's really interesting. You found some really strong advocates Mm-hmm. who
0: were able to allow you to get in the door. And then you demonstrated success. I mean, I think that's yeah. the other thing is, it's not just getting other people to support you. You need to demonstrate some early success that then everyone wants to be associated. Like, oh, that worked. I want to support that. I mean, over the six years that I've been working with you, it's amazing the the accretion of more resources and more people. The more you accomplish, the more, uh, the more people are willing to get on board. So I'm thinking best- of that. Oh,
1: go on, Beth. I'm sorry. And they learn to trust you and trust is so vitally important in those relationships. Yep. So,
0: um, one of the things that's super interesting to me is how you've expanded this program o- across the state and the country. And I think it would be really powerful for people to understand this isn't just at San Quentin anymore. This is something that is, is expanding and you've really created a, a franchise. So, yeah. so how has that worked?
2: Yeah. So, um, it is really built around the franchise idea, even though we are a nonprofit. Um, I wanted to mention that Ray actually is a nonprofit and kudos to Cooley, who is our law firm, who um, all their pro bono work to help Ray get that started. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, but yeah, it is really a franchise. We have a brand, we have a curriculum, we have a way of delivering. Um, so we really package something that is very easy now to lift up in a particular state. Um, We're doing two new uh, classrooms that will be launching very soon. And, you know, for us to be uh, sort of from approval to operating, we can do it within 60 days. So we can do it very quickly. Uh, But it is really built around the franchise model. And the thing that's also evolved is reentry, which uh, Beverly can mention, too. That's that's been a, a component that we didn't have 10 years ago that is very much of a component of our program today.
1: And also piggybacking off of the last question about getting involved with government and how do you do it? It was actually the governor of Indiana, Governor Eric Holcomb, who reached out to us when he learned about the last mile in California and said, we need the last mile for the Hoosier State as part of our next level initiative. So he sent a crew out. They came in. They looked at the program. Within six months, we had our first program in Indiana at the Indianapolis Women's Prison. Today, there are five facilities in Indiana, which we're very proud of. We also have programs in Oklahoma, which are funded by Chan Zuckerberg, the Lobeck Taylor Foundation, George Kaiser Foundation, so uh, local funding along with big funders like Chan Zuckerberg. We launched in Kansas. Again, the department reaching out to us, Kansas Department of Corrections, And Michigan, which is also helped funded by Google.org, but again, I met the head of the Department of Corrections. The Lieutenant Governor came in for our launch in Oklahoma. Governor Stitt came into our launch, Um, and out. So those are our five original programs, and the sixth one, which is not open today, it's not programs but states. The sixth state to be launched is North Dakota.
2: North Dakota. Wow.
1: Well, so we've got a bunch of questions that have been pouring
0: in. Um, one of them that a lot of people are super curious, can you talk about the logistics of teaching, the specifics of teaching coding in prison? How does it compare to what happens in a traditional class in a university?
2: Yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, uh, we have live uh, broadcast into each classroom at least once a week. Um, in our learning management system has all of the, we, in this particular um uh, um, program. We teach primarily front-end coding, so a lot of JavaScript, um, and it's two six-month cohorts, so the whole program is a year. Um, the participants do not have direct access to the internet, but we do have we do have connectivity to the classroom, so all of our content is cloud-based. We push it, uh, updates on a daily basis through their LAN that is uh, distributed through their machines, um, so every day they get fresh content. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really it. The, the, the big difference is they don't have Google. So what we do now have is we have something called account or uh, academic support reps. So we have folks that are dedicated to specific locations um, where I'm a student, I can provide a, or produce a ticket, put in the LMS. That question goes to our uh, service reps. They um, answer that question or help out and send that back within 24 hours. So that's their sort of arm-length Google. Everyone on that ASR team are all graduates of the program.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we had some fascinating challenges teaching a class remotely. And one day a week, we would have a live lecture. We were able to put together a link, a digital link between the prison, between the TLM classrooms, and in my classroom at the D School at Stanford. And so we had one class where literally they, you know, students were on one side of the screen, on, on each side and then once a week the students would have a team meeting with their partners and they would do it via zoom so and we yeah, were the, able to they had to be monitored but they could be in a special room where they had access yeah. it was very cool so um Ray um, there's a question for you which is about what are the very specific marketable skills that you used and that you gained during this this training? What did you go, these are the things that I learned through this program, besides giving a fabulous pitch?
3: Well, you know, um, I think that was really uh, the biggest thing that I learned, was being able to we talk about my, my idea. Um, and then uh, the network, that uh, access to the network. And, and you know, I think when you think about starting a, a business or anything, you have to, uh, again, it's it's you have to tap into something that, that you, you care about, um, and I think that's kind of innate, right? Uh, and you have to have this drive for it. Um, and so when you uh, are introduced to to a, a, a you know opportunity, you know, then then you can take advantage of it so i think like being able to talk about my business and understanding the the power of relationships and and networks um transparency um because when you when you uh, come from a prison like you know you don't want to tell everybody that you've been to prison right and and chris and beverly did a, a good job of encouraging us to uh be transparent like um and and that i think that was you know you, you might not say a hard skill but that's definitely a skill set um and, and, and awareness to to do that right that, that was some uh good insight that they provided
0: very interesting so um um someone else has another question for you having to do with uh, first of all they say they love your shirt so uh got a compliment on your fashion <laughs> uh, choices i know we're all wearing black today that's great that's super very powerful um, so the question is, what piece of advice would you give to, to aspiring entrepreneurs about starting something? Given the, what you've learned and the challenges that you faced, what advice would you give uh, those who are eager to start something uh, themselves?
3: Again, uh, find something that, uh, it, uh, that, that has purpose, right? So when times get hard, you know, uh, you, could, you can lean on that, um, it, it'll help you through the marathon, right? It continues the marathon. The other thing is um, I practice, uh, I made a habit of making uh, self-care a practice, right? Uh, uh, getting up early in the morning, stretching for 20 minutes, meditating for 20 minutes, um, drinking water and coffee, uh, or not coffee, but tea in the morning, um, uh, reading at night. Those are, you know, just develop some good habits uh, to make your, your day uh, a little bit easier. Um, one of the other things that, I try to do even throughout my day is breathing. Like just take some time throughout the day. Take a deep breath. Um, I practice uh, like looking at an object, uh, maybe a few feet away and, and, and paying attention, observing the space between me and that object. And then I think about, you know, all the space in the universe and it kind of uh, centers me and, and it, it gives me back focus. So I say, you know, self-care has some purpose and just keep going, just don't quit.
0: It seems like a tremendous amount has to do with a mindset shift, that it, there's the knowledge, there's the skills, but an important piece is just changing your attitude towards yourself and to the world and to the opportunities around you. Absolutely. So um, I, I, clearly we have inspired a lot of people who are watching, and uh, Bev and Chris, uh, some folks are asking about what sort of volunteer opportunities are there? How can people get involved from the community to support this effort?
2: Sure. Can Okay. Um, yeah. So the volunteer opportunity is um, is something that's really valuable to us. You know, we have a, a small team t- today. We have 30 employees, but we do have a, like I said before, a really robust volunteer group. Um, the best thing to do is reach out directly to info at thelastmile.org. Someone pay attention. We pay attention to that. Someone would respond to that within 24 hours. Um, you know, so... Because of what's going on today, we don't have in-prison visits. Uh, normally, sort of pre-COVID, that was a pretty regular cadence for us. But we do have, as I mentioned before, we are remote into to classrooms. So those classrooms that are open today, we can do that. Um, and, you know, there's uh, help with curriculum as well. So we're constantly evolving curriculum today. We do uh, front-end engineering We're going to be launching an IT certification program and something we just announced last week is a um, music and video production program that we're going to be launching and this is going to be huge. We're going to be um, teaching folks to be audio technicians, video editors, and we're also going to be going across the country um, discovering talent. Um, A good example of talent is uh, Ear Hustle, which many of the folks, if they haven't listened to it, should listen to it. That was came out of San Quentin, out of a small studio in San Quentin. So we're building a studio in our tech center as a prototype so we can discover talent and teach uh, additional trades as well. So those are, you know, if if people have expertise in any of those areas, uh, we'd be happy to talk to them.
0: That is so fabulous. I know you guys already have a deep connection to the music industry. So uh, what a great uh, sort of build out of this program. I hadn't heard about that. Very, very exciting. So there are a bunch of questions about your business model. There are questions about, you know, your funding model. And someone said, do you think that you could make it into a for-profit and maybe take a percentage of, you know, the income of, you know, people who participated. In, I mean, have you thought about different creative funding models for this and, and what is working and what's your, what are your thoughts going forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we really um, looked at this coming from the venture side. When I look at companies, I look at performance first, right? So once you invest you or when you're looking at a company, you have to see sort of performance metrics. And so it was important for us to do that. So we really created some performance metrics that we relied on and we got funding. We don't spend a lot of time fundraising. We spend more time um, really focused on results. Um, could this be a for-profit? Sure, it could be. Um, we really uh, haven't considered that seriously, but you know, the challenge in nonprofits is that funding is fairly short-term Normally your commitment's maybe two, maybe three years, but when you're venture funding, you're funding out for 10 years, right? Um, or at least five years. So um, it allows you to plan and grow a little more uh, realistically if you're a for-profit. Um, so the model could work. We are, you know, we're sort of dedicated to the mission. And I said before that the companies that are bringing us money are also bringing us a lot of effort and it's very meaningful. So if you went the for-profit route, you may lose that, Um But, you know, the model would work there potentially. We just haven't gone down that route.
0: So it's interesting. One of the questions was for me. And it says, uh, what have I learned working on this program? And how has it changed the way I work as an educator? Well, I must say it has really made me much more empathetic. Um, I have had to really understand that people come from really diverse different backgrounds. And um, one of the things one of the men said when we were doing a check-in with our students, and he said, how would you feel if you were judged by the worst thing you have ever done? And I just realized that you know everybody has things in their life that they're proud of and things that they're not and things that have affected them and that we need to treat everyone with compassion Uh, Right now, as a teacher, when we're having students all over the world, some in very different conditions, my experience teaching at at San Quentin has made me really understand the range of places people might be right now and the situations they might be um, dealing with. And so it makes me much more sensitive to that as I'm as I'm trying to teach. So um, let's see. I have a lot. I have a lot of questions. Another one just came in. The one that came in is how do you balance depth? providing more service to those you work with versus breath, reaching more
1: people. So that's really interesting. Um, You know, from day one, we decided that we wanted to prove what we did worked and then scale it as far and wide as we possibly could because of the systemic issues in society and how we could make a change. So, Having more people in a specific facility versus having as many facilities as possible is really um, our goal because the ripple effect of the work is just something that is just community-focused, changing families, changing communities, role models. Ray is a role model in his community. Guys who've come home and women who've come home who have jobs as software engineers, no one in their community ever even had a computer or was on a keyboard before, and here they are being role models. So those are the types of things that that make us believe that scale is so vitally important. And we continue education once our students are back in a position where they can attend boot camps or continue their education. So it's more about reaching as far and wide as we can right now, being the best we can everywhere we go, and having the model just keep expanding.
2: One, one thing we have done going deeper is we've gotten much deeper in, in reentry. So um, in job placement, and there's programs like Next Chapter that, that we've helped spawn, and we've had support from folks in the Valley like uh, um, Andreessen Horowitz who launched a cultural leadership fund. So those things are going deeper, educating inside. It's really important for us that we had pre and post gate in a sense, where where we continue that relationship. So that's going deeper for sure.
0: So, uh, Ray, I, I'm, I'd love to have your thoughts on this. I mean, obviously, you have this program in prison, and then you go out. Are, do you think about what kind of programming is, would be helpful to you as you, uh, through that transition, but also afterwards? I mean, Chris, you mentioned there are some new opportunities. You know, how does TLM fit into the larger eco- ecosystem of support for those people who are, you know, reentering after, after being in the system?
3: Uh so if I understand your question right it's like what type of support do I think uh TLM could provide uh different support is, is that correct so yeah. uh if that's the que- the question um uh, I think they're working on it with the reentry piece um there are there are specific things that that guys need uh once they get out like um and and people are taking different paths you know some people are, are going out uh, they they get the uh the coding uh, education and they're finding jobs uh, or they're looking at, you know, starting their own uh, organizations, you know, to become entrepreneurs. And, and so I think like there's different uh, needs that different folks have. And so, you know, just uh, creating this network where, where uh, cats can uh, communicate with each other and, and, and then share the, the resource, resources that they learn um, on their own. Cause if you're out, you know, you, I would suggest don't just rely on uh, TLM, or if you go to Stanford, don't just rely on what you learned at Stanford. Like you still have to go outside and and venture out and figure figure things out. Like there's a world opportunity out there. Don't limit yourself. Um, But um, as far as like TLM, like yeah, build this network so people who do find other resources can use those resources as as well. So that's that's my. uh,
0: Great. So, I want to ask the last question to Beverly and Chris, and that is, you know, ten years you've been doing this. What would be your vision and your goal for this program for the next ten years? Ten years.
2: Yeah. So, um, as Beverly said, scale is important. I mean, we we have a short term goal. Within the next four years, we we'll want to be in fifty classrooms, um, and we want to make that um, you know within at least ten states. Um, but we also want to have a broader program. As I mentioned, we have three programs that we have or are launching soon. So the goal really is to become the de facto uh, platform for education in prison uh, because we do have a platform that we built. Uh, a lot of it, what we've done proprietary. So we, we've used a lot of tools, but you know the, the security and, um, uh, of the system and make sure that we don't have breaches. We put a lot of t- time and effort in IT that's specific to prison. Uh, that's, you know, it's taken us five years. We constantly iterate that, but that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, so really it's, it's growing what, what we're doing. We really think that other programs could build on top of what we're doing. So almost in an open source environment that other programs could build on top of our platform. So plug yeah, so that, that's, that's really how we see the next 10 years.
1: So today we are in 21 classrooms in six states. So in ten, getting to 50 in, in four years, we think is highly achievable. The
0: Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.